Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Sarah Barber and Jennifer Hawes. Sarah is the executive director of the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault and is also part of Governor Nikki Haley's South Carolina Domestic Violence Task Force. And Jennifer is a reporter for Charleston's Post and Courier newspaper, who was also a part of the team of journalists who won the Pulitzer Prize for their series of articles entitled, Till Death Do Us Part. We're going to talk about the recent attention that has been brought to the subject of domestic violence in South Carolina today by Till Death Do Us Part and by the work of organizations and countless individuals. Sarah, both the legislature and the governor have taken some decisive steps forward in efforts to curb domestic violence and violence against women, but the situation still serious. We are in a, in a terrible situation. Um, the Violence Policy Center report that comes out each year, which is a measure of the number of women who are killed by men. So it, it's not a, an absolute figure around domestic violence, but it does show that we have an extremely high level of lethal um, violence towards women in our state. Our rate is twice the national average. And when you really think about it, it's not just that we're first this year or that we were second last year. It's really that for the 18 years that report has been issued, we've been in the top 10 every single year. Right. When you say the national average, how many deaths are we talking about? How many? And th- this is just death. This isn't incidents of d- domestic right. violence. Right. This is just death. So domestic violence, when it reaches uh, its worst possible outcome, um, our rate per 100,000 um, women is 2.32. How many women in South Carolina? Last year it was 57. 57? Mm-hmm. 57 women. So more than one a week. Yes. And, I think, and to echo some of what Sarah said, I think that the the issue is um, not only the number of deaths of women per year, but when you're looking at the rate, the year that we wrote till death do us part, South Carolina's rate was twice the national average. So we were not only number one, but we were number one um, by a large measure. And I think that that, for us anyway, really caught our eye as to why is it that South Carolina is ranking so high. I think we all know this is a patriarchal state. We know this is a very pro-Second Amendment state, very religious state. And that that was one of the pieces that, that, um, that I tried to help bite off. So let's talk about the legislation that was being discussed. And, and uh, Jennifer, you mentioned a, a very interesting turn of events is when you and the team from the Post and Courier were at Columbia University in New York City to receive the Pulitzer Prize as you were on the steps of the Low Library, I believe. You got word that a very important piece of legislation had passed the General Assembly of South Carolina. And at that point, it was looking iffy. The Senate had passed it. Um, that was encouraging. But the 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 bill had a real snag in the House, particularly because there was a provision in it that would take gun ownership rights away from uh, offenders, particularly those who had committed the most serious crimes. They could have their rights taken away longer. And there was a very strong sentiment against that. Uh, when we left Charleston, I think there was some doubt in all of our minds as to whether that would pass. And if it didn't, you start asking yourself, well, was all of this, had we achieved anything? I suppose it's maybe a better way to say it. Had, had any real change been made in South Carolina as a result of our series and other people's work? Um, so when we, got to, uh, when we got to Columbia, we were standing on the steps of the library waiting to go into the luncheon, and uh, one of my colleagues received a text from our um, Columbia reporter saying it had passed the House. So it was just an, a really neat merger of everything to f- because the Pulitzer Prize we won was for public service um, to make us uh, remember the real reason that newspapers exist is to is to provide that sort of public service. And I think for all of us it was a really... Um, moving moment to feel like um, we're doing our our jobs as journalists and that something had been done in South Carolina and maybe would have would help to save 
other people's lives down the road. And the act, give us the name of the act and, and talk a little bit about it. Well, it's known as um, Senate Bill 3 was how it started off, and it ended up being um, a merger of a bill that came out of the Senate and also a bill that um, started in the House that had um, come out of the Special Domestic Violence Study Committee that um, former, Senate, former Speaker Bobby Harrell set up in, in the wake of the Post and Careers articles the previous summer. And it really, it does many things. It's a, a comprehensive change to the way we react to domestic violence through the law. The first thing the bill did was it took the word criminal out of domestic violence as it's considered under under the law. So um, that's important because you don't, you know, domestic violence, all domestic violence is criminal. So why are we making, why before did we make a difference and a distinction between criminal domestic violence as opposed to domestic violence. How did they tell the difference? Right. I mean, how, I mean, there there is no difference. All domestic violence is criminal. I think that is, is the criminal. question. Mm -hmm. so. I mean, to me, that's the issue. Is we, we would talk with people, and I know Sarah deals with this all the time, who their thinking was that violence that occurred between a couple was somehow different mm -hmm. from if I we all went out on the street and I beat you up. So to go to Sarah's point, I think that it was um, the idea of taking that all of these episodes are crimes. It's not only a crime in certain instances. Mm -hmm. And that thinking is what I think needs to change, is that if you assault your intimate partner in your home, that is not different from if I go to Walter Edgar's home and I assault you. That's not something that should be um, viewed as different. Or well, And now under the law, it's not different, is it? Well, that's around terminology. And I think, you know, when we think about domestic violence and everything, words are very important. So if we're saying domestic violence is outlawed, that's different than saying criminal domestic violence is outlawed, because as you said, how do you tell the difference between those? Um, and I also think, you know, when we talk about abusive relationships, is it really an abusive relationship or is it an abuser being violent within the context of a relationship. Um, I was reading a story yesterday about um, this happened in the upstate where a jury just awarded um, the family of a homicide victim um, damages against the police department um, for negligence. And when I was reading the description of the incident, the murder that took place, it said that there was a verbal fight that then escalated into a physical, a physical fight. But that wasn't a fight implies both sides are participating in this, whereas this was an assault, a murderous assault on somebody. So I think one of the things that we're getting far from the law here, but um, I think it's very important when we talk about these crimes that we really ground ourselves in what the words mean and how those are perceived. So the law now looks at both the number of times somebody has been convicted of domestic violence before and also takes into account aggravating factors. So if, you, if the incident happens in front of a child, if strangulation is involved, if a weapon is involved, um, different levels of injury to the victim, it takes all those into account. So the police and the prosecutors are taking all those into account when they move forward with a case. It's no longer just a CDV first where the range of injury could be um, very little or fairly severe. It now will, um, you know, take all those into account. And so if you have moderate bodily injury, you will be facing higher penalties. Moderate bodily injury. I mean, can you give me an example? That is one of the problems with the law that has been identified in that. It is it, that part of it is still I mean, vague. A, a black eye, scratch it. I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't think it's defined. It's not well defined. So, so I mean, we have, we, have, we have this new law, which is a great step mm -hmm. forward. But then enforcement takes, has to take place with police departments, with 
district attorneys and prosecutors who've got to decide to bring the case mm-hmm. to court, and then you have to deal with the jury. We have a massive amount of education to do in our state, and as important as passing this legislation was, I think it's also very um, important at this time that the governor has stepped forward to implement her task force because that gives us a structure to look at what needs to be done to um, to both implement the law appropriately. So that is ranging from training law enforcement, training 911 operators, potentially um, putting more prosecutors in court systems so that they can try cases faster, to looking at what kind of education and prevention do we need to do both in our schools and in our communities at large, and really trying to have a more holistic look at um, how we deal with this as a state. Because laws, the criminal justice system is very important, and I think our laws tend to define our values and what we think is important. But we need to do more as well. We could have the best law in in the world, but if there is no community understanding of how to implement that or um, how to interpret it, then it's not going to be done well. So I think it's very important to recognize that both of these coincided, both with the law and then with the governor putting the power of her office between a statewide effort to look at the culture around domestic violence and what we need to change. I mean, I've participated in many meetings and we have 140 people, I think, who've participated in the task force. So hopefully we'll come out and we have come out with, you know, recommendations on what needs to happen, but also just getting all those people at the table, all the people who play a different role in this throughout our state, getting to know each other and getting to increase the communication between them, I think, can potentially lead us to make a big difference. All right. Jennifer, how did the Post and Courier decide to pick up this topic? This became a major piece of investigative reporting, and you were part of the team. And I've just got to read the opening paragraph for the first article. I know as a writer, you you grab people's attention. Well, you sure grab people's attention with this. This This is the lead paragraph of the first article. More than 300 women were shot, stabbed, strangled, beaten, bludgeoned, or burned to death over the past decade by men in South Carolina dying at a rate of one every 12 days while the state does little to stem the carnage from domestic abuse. More than three times as many women have died here at the hands of current or former lovers than the number of Palmetto State soldiers killed in the Iraq War. That is a showstopper. Well, and you know, I I hope that that introduction to the series really makes the point that we, even at the newspaper, had missed. South Carolina had ranked high uh, from the Violence Policy Center's rankings for years, so we knew this was a problem. And I have to confess that when we heard that year that South Carolina was ranked number one, it wasn't a huge surprise. Um, And there was... A moment, I think, where we all kind of feel jaded of it's yet another example of where South Carolina has ranked high and something you would want to rank low in, or vice versa. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of a joke, uh, unfortunately, among reporters, because you get these kinds of rankings all the time. But smarter people than me stepped forward and said, well, why is it that South Carolina is number one, and why is our rate in particular so high? And so we decided to take a deeper look at it. Um, we brought in four reporters who came from different areas of the newsroom and brought to the table different areas of um, expertise, maybe. And, and what is your specialty? So I was the newspaper's faith and values writer at the time. Okay. And so my piece of it early on, although this all got kind of meshed together as time went on, um, was to look at the culture of the state uh, and some issues such as why do women stay in these relationships. That was the piece that I really started off with. And so we kind of broke up how to go about this, uh, looking at law enforcement, the culture, um, the legislature, and some other areas. And I don't think we even really realized uh, how 
enormous of a problem it was until as we started investigating, we put together a database that, that took the Attorney General's Office's silent witness list, which is a list that comes out every year of people who've been killed in domestic violence uh, situations. And we attempted to look up everything from uh, perpetrators' criminal records to were they men, men or women, what type of weapon was used, were children present. We put together for 10 years um, this kind of data for every case, and we used the Freedom of Information Act to get more information from police departments as needed. Some didn't maintain those records in an easily accessible format, or they weren't uh, made public at the time. And so we put together this database that, that allowed us to make some of the statements that you just read. Um, we didn't realize that more than 300 women had died in that, in that 10 years, um, or that one every 12 days mm -hmm. dies. But once we put that together, it gave us sort of a backbone to work with. And from there, we went out and essentially met as many uh, families of victims and survivors as we could. And I think for me, the the thing that drove it home the most was that oftentimes in stories like this, you'll find anecdotes that are so perfect for the story that you return to them time and time again. But we did not have to do that in this at all. There was so many uh, women and uh, surviving family members who shared these just horrific stories, and you realize how common this is across every kind of walk of life, uh, every age group, income group, mm -hmm. racial group, I, part I, of the state. It was amazing. So domestic violence knows no class lines, no racial lines. I think that's vitally important, and I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes it doesn't get the attention that it should, is people think, and I, I think some of this is protecting themselves, of this can't happen to me, but they, they paint domestic violence as happening in certain parts of town to certain kind of people who have certain kind of problems and that they don't identify themselves with that. Um, but what the reality is, is, you know, with the with the the deaths and the homicide rate, it's like this slow drip of tragedy against this huge backdrop of violence that just cuts through our society. Um, this past year, I've spoken at a lot of um, women's luncheon clubs and, you know, mostly fairly affluent women at those clubs. And without fail, at least one woman comes forward to me and discloses that she is a victim of domestic violence and that it was happening in a mansion, not in the trailer where people tend to think of it happening. And, and also, I think it's important to note that we, I think we form those stereotypes because when you're talking about lower income um, neighborhoods, that's when the police are called. That's when law enforcement's mostly involved. With more because when you're resources, then you have lawyers and psychiatrists and, and doctors who they can turn to. But in many neighborhoods, law enforcement is it. Having said that, um, I think it's also very important that we recognize how many people never call law enforcement and who don't trust law enforcement to do, you know, to help them, who think maybe it will make the situation worse to call. You know, when you look at shelter populations, you know, only 28% of people in a shelter actually had law enforcement involvement. So as much as we do around um, working to improve our laws and our criminal justice response, we're only catching the tip of the iceberg when we do that. Are there women's shelters? I know they're in the large cities, but what about smaller places? There's 18 emergency shelters in our state. They're not in every county. Shelters are in some ways a, a difficult subject because they provide a very, very necessary service. But I think we also, as a state, need to stop moving towards where the national model is going now. And that's really thinking of shelter as a verb rather than as a noun because shelters are so expensive to run. And 
I think it's hard for women when they're considering leaving a relationship to then think of moving into a traditional shelter. You know, communal living involves a lot of rules. There's a lot of stresses added on to the stress of leaving your relationship and your, your house. So I'm hoping that one of the things we can do working through the task force and, and as a movement in itself is moving towards offering a variety of safe spaces where women can women and men who are fleeing domestic violence can go and feel safe and start to rebuild their lives in a home. One thing I would add to that, going back to the the legislation that was passed, is that previously for your first criminal domestic violence conviction, you could get up to 30 days in jail. Now, for women who are in domestic violence situations, the most dangerous time for them is when they attempt to leave the relationship or when charges are filed. So if you keep a perpetrator in jail for potentially a couple of weeks, you might as well just open the door for him to return home and take his retribution. And I think that the the issue in Sarah mentioned this is that we are asking the the uh, victim to uproot her life, go to a shelter, potentially move her children from school if she has no transportation, be away from her support system if she has one. And, and what I hope this law will do that increases penalties is to keep people who are charged uh, in jail longer so that the victim can try to get her life back together or at least put some mechanisms in place from the safety of her home without the perpetrator there and not ask her to uproot herself and her children when she's going through all of this and instead have the perpetrator stay in jail longer so that she can do those things from her from her space instead of putting the onus on the victim to get out of her home with her children, go somewhere potentially far away from her family. If she has no car, she may have no job. Uh, why do we put this burden on the victim to uproot her life and have him stay in jail for a matter of weeks and not fully fulfills the time that he's required to serve? I just thought that was... Um, very dangerous. And in fact, one of the victims I uh, interviewed, who I followed for some time, she had um, contacted police and her husband was arrested. He was in jail. It had been a week or two. She contacts me in the middle of the night how fearful she is for her life because the jails called her to let her know he could get out soon. Um, she has no recourse. She's sitting in her house feeling like a, like, you know, a completely vulnerable and if she uh, attacks back her concern was that she would be arrested for domestic violence and then that would be on her record she could lose her job she was a nursing assistant I, I, I feel like all of that is is putting way too much of a burden on the victim to do something to protect herself when our criminal justice system should be protecting her and hopefully these increased penalties will allow uh, perpetrators to stay in jail longer so that the victims can then get themselves into a safer place as they have the time and capacity to do it and not on the timetable of, oh, he could get out of jail in a week or two. To me, that just seemed that just seemed ridiculous. I think our expectations of victims are really quite tremendous, especially when you think about the um, the fear and stress that they're operating under, and what they have to try and pull together to move on to a new life. You know, often the question is asked, "Why didn't she leave?" When really we should be thinking it's a miracle that anybody manages to leave. Um, when you think about moving, losing everything, maybe you've never been able to work because he wouldn't let you. You don't have access to the phones. You don't have access to a car. Your children are going to have to move school. That's if you get to keep custody of your children because if he's the one working and he's the one that has access to an attorney, then the chances are you may lose your children in the family court. It's just so complicated. This is even with the new law. You might even with the new law. 
um, one of the things I'm really hoping we can look at through the Domestic Violence Task Force is the important role that family courts play and that family court judges have to play in this because the criminal court is one aspect of this. But when you're in family court, you're dealing with where you live, your kids, um, how you're going to support yourself. I mean, it's just... When we think about this as an issue that someone's facing, it's so encompassing. You know, if somebody, as somebody who has a, a job and a, a stable life, if you suddenly told me tomorrow I was going to have to find the money to buy a new car, to pay utility deposits, to move my kids' schools, and to just basically completely uproot my life. I wouldn't be able to do that. And we're asking women who may not have those resources and who, again, are in an extremely fearful and stressed position. We're asking them to do all this with no assistance, really. Well, well earlier you used the term shelter becoming a verb as mm-hmm. opposed to a noun. Um, I mean, you can get restraint orders. You can get, I mean, but obviously people, those just don't seem to be working very well. Is that right? It's, or, or is it a mixed bag? It's a mixed bag. Orders of protection are very important, especially if you end up having to deal with law enforcement again and that you have a document that shows that this person has been ordered to stay away from you. On the other hand, people who violate orders of protection, and it is, after all, it is a piece of paper. Somebody who violates an order of protection is very, very dangerous indeed. So it is important for women that they are able to get those orders, that they are able to get the support of the courts, but also that we are realistic with them on what the limits of safety those provide. Well, and there's that sense that you know, I think there's a bit of that frontier mentality in South Carolina that's remained where there's a there's a tremendous pride in being self-sufficient and um, protecting your property. And if you view your wife as part of that property, uh, she may have um, wealth at her disposal or not, but the mentality is that she belongs to her husband and that if he chooses to treat her a certain way, that's his business and the neighbors ought not get involved, uh, that there is a very strong mentality surrounding that in that you don't contact the police and get the police involved in somebody else's marital problems because that's how it's viewed, a marital problem. It's not a crime. Uh, Of course, we feel like it is a crime and it should be treated that way, but I think the the view is still too commonly held that uh, that a man can do to his wife what he so desires. And, you know, it's interesting to note it was only, I think, 1991 that marital rape was criminalized. So you can imagine being in a relationship in which your husband is beating you and sexually assaulting you, and that is not considered a crime. How do you, as a victim, feel confident in the criminal justice system to help you? Uh, that's, that's, to me, still... Uh, something that's holding strong. And and to go to the same point on the culture of the state, uh, when I was doing some research for this uh, series, I ran across a new uh, survey that had come out by a Christian um, polling center. It had surveyed Protestant pastors, and it found that something like 42%, as I recall, uh, of pastors rarely or never had spoken about domestic violence from the pulpit. And of those who had, some majority felt it was not actually a problem in their pews. So you can see where the thinking, it's someone else's problem. It goes back to what we were talking about as far as uh, demographics. That's someone else's problem. That's uh, someone who's of a different income level than me or education our, our, level. Our good church-going people don't do that. And, and I think mm-hmm. there's a real um, dichotomy with faith communities in the church. And on the one hand, they provide so much support and do so much good for victims of domestic violence. On the other hand, there's been, um, and in the more traditional churches, it's true, where it is seen as a private matter or the couple is encouraged to come for couples counseling with the pastor, which, you know, can be absolutely 
terrifyingly dangerous for a woman to come to a counseling situation where she feels she's able to say what's going on and then gets home and is punished for letting anyone else what's going on going on in their home so i think we we have um when we when we talk about religion and its hold in the south and, and what it means around this issue it's very important that we keep both those things in mind we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal and i'm talking with Sarah Barber of the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Jennifer Halls from the Post and Courier who was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize looking at at this issue Jennifer, who were the other members of your team? The other members were uh, Glenn Smith, Doug Pardue, and Natalie Kalahauf and myself. We were the reporting team. Of course, there were editors, designers, photographer. Grace Beam was instrumental. There were other, many, many other people involved. I think I, you know. I think it's important to say too. You know, when I was first working with your team, that you know, Glenn had said that. When you first started working on this issue, he had called into the coalition for a conference call about why um, South Carolina was number one on the date that that report was released, and that he was the only person on the call. This year, two people called this in, year, Glenn this, and one other yeah, person. Yeah, this year when we held a conference call, so two years later, on the same subject, um, Glenn and one other per- person were the only people that called in. So. I think, you know, that goes back to this whole idea of this being a a slow dripping of tragedy taking place against this huge backdrop of violence that we as a society have just become used to and don't and don't pay attention to. I I would say, actually, I think when we're talking about um, uh, divorce and statistics like that, that it is important to note um, one of the things that I think pastors really struggle with and couples of faith struggle with is that when you make those vows till death do us part, which is why we named the series is you make those vows before God and your family and your community that that many, many people in the state hold very tightly to those vows. And that is both um, a wonderful thing and a detriment to women who are tied in these marriages mm-hmm. and feel like they cannot get out. They feel like uh, they go to their pastors, and sometimes their pastors want to ha- help them preserve their marriage, which is a, a, a laudable goal. However, when you're sending someone back into an abusive situation, she's potentially at escalating risk. So I think that uh, the, the fact that this is a very Christian state and that many couples hold tightly to those vows is a wonderful thing, but it's potentially a very dangerous thing for women as well who want to preserve those marriages and and are turning to pastors who also want to help them preserve those marriages. But in fact, that can put them at greater danger later, particularly if she says something to the pastor and that's related to the perpetrator and then he takes it out on her for telling somebody. And I think one of the um, people that you interviewed for um, the series, when I was rereading it last night, she talked about how she realized that God did not want her to die. God did not want her to be killed by this man just to stay in the marriage. And she, the way, and she put it, mm-hmm. as I remember this was so profound to me, she said, I was praying for the wrong thing. Yes. She had been praying for God to come change her husband, God to come... Uh, save her marriage when in fact she realized what she should be praying for was her was her safety and her ability to get out of that relationship and I for me that was just so touching that she was turning to her faith and it was keeping her in a day in a relationship that could have ended in her death um, but she came to this realization and got out as I recall this was a woman who was beaten unconscious by her husband and later escaped. Yeah. All right. You, you use the, the title, Until Death Us Do Part. Um, how has the faith community, re- how did they react to this to this series? I think most pastors were um, very eager to find out what they could do. Uh, I know a number of churches in the Charleston area, anyway, set up meetings with law enforcement to try to... I, I think a lot of pastors did not know... They weren't sure what to counsel a couple 
what at what point is something an issue I should contact the police over? Uh, at what point is it something I should counsel them to try to potentially um, sort of get past? I think a lot of pastors just didn't really know. And I know there were several churches in town who held like, conferences to try to educate pastors and brought in law enforcement, that sort of thing. There was one group in particular, I remember, who took some offense to it that, that felt we had portrayed it as a Christian problem, which I strongly disagree with. I think we made it clear that churches have been a refuge for many women, but that there are moments when pastors can step in and provide safety by encouraging women to contact police or directing them to shelters or helping in ways other than sending them back into relationships that can be dangerous. Um, but I would say, by and large, from the religious community and beyond, I, what we heard back was very positive. When we talk about domestic violence, we've talked about spousal abuse, but you've also got child abuse in this situation, correct? Well, there's, um, well, I think, you know, when at its most basic level, a child witnessing their mother being beaten by their father, that's a form of, a, of emotional abuse of that child and is setting the pattern for how they perceive relationships and what a relationship looks like. But there is also a high correlation of um, domestic violence and child abuse um, in general, too. And when we put that database together, one of the things that I know we talked about as being um, shocking were the number of times children were present at the mm -hmm. time of the killing, um, were in the home, had witnessed it, just varying degrees of involvement. They themselves had been injured. Uh, that was uh, really shocking because now here's a child who's lost, uh, lost one parent. The other parent is either dead or in prison and is left with the scars of what they've seen to move forward. And how do you, how do you keep that cycle then from continuing uh, victimization and, and, and violence? I worked, um, I used to work with offenders in the court system before I came into this role. And many, many times I heard um, people in the program say, I grew up watching my father do this and I promised I would never, ever ever hit someone I was involved with, and here I am. I've been convicted, I'm, I'm, I've been to jail, and now I'm in a program to try and stop me doing this. And so I, you know, I think it is definitely passed on through the generations, and, and that's where we really need to concentrate a lot of our efforts is in prevention in our schools, in our communities, in our churches, so that we can really transform how young people grow up and, and, and perceive this issue. And I, when I say um, prevention, I mean really doing this well, um, making sure that we adhere to principles of prevention, of effective prevention programming. So we're doing sustained education over a period of weeks, over a number of years. We're making sure that it's age appropriate and that we're reinforcing that within the community too. Well, there was an interesting um, survivor. We interviewed Christian Rainey, who mm -hmm. has who's, uh, lost his mother and all of his siblings in a domestic violence uh, homicide. And Christian has been involved with a group called Real Mad that has taken an approach that to me was really interesting of, of addressing men. It seems like historically when we talk about domestic violence, we always talk about uh, addressing the victim, who usually are women, mm -hmm. um, instead of how do we address men who later could become perpetrators. And his group has taken a real focus of um, talking to men about uh, appropriate reactions in relationships and just kind of providing some male role models and discussion, which I think is a a potentially uh, new inroad. It's something that I hadn't heard a whole lot about when but we started this. Um, it's taking place on a national level, the whole engaging men and boys, um, because obviously we can't 
solve this problem without 50% of the population being involved. <laughs> you know, and at Skadvasa too, we have an Engaging Men and Boys initiative that we're trying to work on. It's also Man Upstate in the Greenville-Spartanburg area that's really trying to, to coalesce both how do you engage men and boys in this work and then how do you keep them engaged and to, to keep learning and moving forward and developing more positive relationship models. Sarah, how long have you been doing this? I've been in this job. I actually started six weeks before the Post and Courier articles came out. <laughs> um, so I had uh, quite a um, for, uh, quite a busy first year. Um, but I've worked in this field now for almost 15 years. I spent 13 years working, as I said, with the court system and with domestic violence offenders. Okay. And Jennifer, I, I, since I did read the Post and Courier fairly, I know you did the Faith and Values, but this was sort of a new totally new <laughs> tack, if you will, go going into this this particular story. Well, it was and it wasn't. We've, um, you know, the beat reporters of the Post and Courier are encouraged to bite off projects as well. I think this one was neat because it was the first time that a group from across the newsroom really had taken on something in depth. And now, uh, um, that's something that we're looking at doing a lot more because I think to tap everyone's interests and expertise areas and to do work that's more in-depth and hopefully meaningful, I think we all feel like that's the, the purpose of journalism in the newspaper. So um, I've covered a number of beats beforehand. That was just the most recent one I, um, I happened to be on. For me, too, it's important to recognize the power of the media, in this case, the power of the newspaper, in that, as we've said, this issue has been ingrained in South Carolina for decades, and it really took this series to push it to the tipping point of public attention where action started to be taken. This, this series from the Post and Courier, the task force, the new law, how do you feel about are we close to making a real difference now in South Carolina? I think we're at the beginning. Um, I'm hopeful, which I would not have been two years ago. Um, I'm very hopeful that we can make change, that the impetus to make change is there, and that people are listening. Um, people are recognizing where we are, that we need as a community to come together to make that change. But I think what we've done is the first steps and that we have to keep that momentum moving forward. Jennifer? I would agree. I, I am hopeful that there is attention being paid to it and that that will empower people like Sarah who are doing the real work on it. Um, there's still plenty of work to be done, but I think that when, to me, the, the largest undercurrent that we have to deal with is the culture in the state, and that is simply going to take time. Um, can't reverse those kind of long, entrenched ideas uh, overnight or with one series of stories. Uh, I think that's going to take years and years, and I think that's where the task force can really make a meaningful difference. And I think just keeping it in the public eye, you know, at the newspaper, for instance, where we used to write a story that said, you know, man kills woman, so on and so on, that now we're also more aware of when we report on domestic situations to present them as such and to not bury them in the newspaper. This is still a very significant problem. So while I'm hopeful, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think if we can keep it in the public eye with this task force and some other um, other things moving forward, we can continue that. But I'll be very interested when the Vi Violence Policy Center releases its numbers next year. Mm -hmm. Will be the first time we'll be able to see if there's been any impact. Because this past year was 2013, 13. and um, our series ran in 2014. Right? It's, it's going to be a few years, few years before we really see that impact. I think, um, you know, because so the law took effect in the summer of this year. And even now, we don't really know how the law is playing out. Um, we're going to have to really make an effort to do some data collection, which is something that the task force has identified as being lacking and that we don't really have a specific 
um, grasp on on the scale of the problem. So hopefully with improved data collection, we can see the effect that the new law is having in years to come. Well, one of you mentioned the silent witness list. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Is that something the Attorney General's office maintains? So every year the Attorney General's office holds a ceremony to remember those who've died at the hands of domestic violence. And uh, they release with that a list of of the victims and some basic data about him or her. Um, and that's what we used as the starting point. But every year there is a ceremony it to was, honor them. It's right. the first Tuesday in October. It takes place on the um, back steps of the State House. Um, and the Attorney General reads out the names and stories of all the victims who've been identified victims of domestic violence homicides from the year before in our state and sometimes family members or staff or volunteers carry wooden silhouettes um, that represent those victims. It's an incredibly moving ceremony. Last year two children carried their mother's um, silhouette while her story was being read out and it's 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 a simple ceremony that's just profound in its effect, and I would encourage everybody to go. So it really makes you pause and recognize um, what's happened to these families. Well, if, if listeners out there are concerned and interested and want to get involved to help, what should they do? Well, we would encourage them to, to reach out. We have a lot of resources on our website. Um, we'd also like people to sort of educate themselves on what they can do to help a friend or family member or an employee who discloses to them that they're a victim of domestic violence. So we'd really ask that people listen, that they ask if the victim or the person disclosing is if they think they're in danger, um, to believe them, because that's something that often domestic violence um, and sexual violence victims struggle is with is that they're not believed because the person who's assaulting them is perceived of as a, as a good man in the community, that they gather information to give to them on how they can find help in their area um, and to continue to be there to recognize that their role is not to tell someone what to do and that this person may go back and they may leave and they may go back multiple times. But if you stay there and you listen to them, them, you're going to make it much more likely that this will have a safe outcome for them. What is your web address? Scudvasa.org. So it's S-C-C-A-D-V-A-S-A.org. Okay. I just wanted that, so we will put them on the link on our, okay. our website so that folks can do that. And there's also a list of resources on the Post and Curious Till Death Does Part site that probably has a lot of common links but and um, that site's still up right it is so it's postgencourier.com slash till death okay and that series is well it's it's over but you said you're still it's on as a self-contained website so it's still up there you can go and back to the website facebook thread that's right that is a, updated um if you like um till death do us part on Facebook, do you all get updates from the Post and Courier when every article they publish on domestic violence. Okay. Well, this has been interesting. I, I always say, did you enjoy the journal? And <laughs> this isn't one of those topics, but I think it's the topic that needed to be talked about. I really appreciate the two of you coming in today. Jennifer Halls with the Post and Courier and Sarah Barber, Executive Director of the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Thank you both so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank well, you. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar. Usually I say I hope that you enjoyed today's journal. 
But a topic like domestic violence is not something one enjoys talking about, and yet we need to talk about it. South Carolina, with the recent domestic violence reform law and the work of the South Carolina Domestic Violence Task Force, is making a good start at addressing this issue. And the work of my guests, Jennifer Halls and Sarah Barber, along with that of countless other groups and individuals, is making a difference. But there's still a lot of work left to do. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.